Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning as people with scattered and busy hearts. There are so many things that pull us and push us. There are things that hurt. And Lord, we have things that we wish that we had not done. Our only hope is in the work of your Son. I pray, Lord, that we would see that clearly this morning and that our eyes would be fixed on him. Amen. If you're confused when Eric started reading, it was my fault. I asked him to start a few verses early because that's actually where we're going to pick up this story in John 6 this morning. The next, next four weeks will actually be out of John 6. Beginning in verse 22 and moving onwards, we're going to spend four weeks in this chapter, which is an awful lot, but it's an important chapter. My encouragement to you is to actually, over the next month, take this chapter as a place of meditation. Sink deep into it. Use it in your private devotions and let its words transform your soul. John 6 is like a microcosm of the entire Gospel of John. Most of the themes that occur in the entire Gospel show up in John 6, the themes of Jesus' identity, the themes of who can see him, the themes of what it means to believe in him, his relationship from the, with the Father, the necessity of the Spirit, the gift of eternal life, the signs that he does, all of these themes that are scattered throughout the Gospel show up in this discourse in the latter half of John 6. It's like a microcosm. We're going to be picking up in verse 22. But in order to understand this, it's worth spending just a few seconds on what happens in the first half of the chapter, the setting. The chapter begins with people who are curious about signs of healing that Jesus has done. Those people go out into the wilderness to look for him. Now, signs is an important word for John. A sign to John is a miraculous thing that Jesus does, but it's not random. It's a miracle that points to his identity, and it's a miracle that points to his goals and his work, his mission. None of the signs are just what they seem. So you take the sign of water turned to wine at Cana, it points to Jesus' identity as the bridegroom. It points to his work, the great heavenly feast. You take the miracle, the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead. It points to Jesus' identity as the resurrection and the life. And it points to the work that he will do to raise all who come to him in faith. You take the sign of Jesus healing the man born blind. It's not just a man healed, it is that. But it points to Jesus' identity as the true light of the world, the one who shines in darkness. This is the way the Gospel of John opens. And it points to his work to open the eyes of those who come to him. In other words, signs in John are not just miracles. They indicate who Jesus is and what he would do. So the Jews have seen signs of healing, and they're curious. They follow him into the wilderness, looking for him. It's also significant, we learn in the first half of the chapter, that this occurs at the time of Passover. 
because Passover was the time when a Jew was particularly conscious of his or her identity, particularly conscious of the deliverance that God had brought through Moses from slavery in Egypt. They would have been particularly conscious of the need for deliverance in the present day as they were under the thumb of Rome. Passover was there July 4th. Can you imagine what July 4th would feel like to celebrate if we were under a foreign power? It would be this point of pain where we remember deliverance from the past and long for deliverance in the future. This whole story is in that setting. These are important bits of context. And so the Jews go out seeking Jesus, and at that moment in the wilderness, he performs another sign. He feeds the 5,000. He performs another sign. Now the Jews of that day, and we know this because of the writings that occurred between Malachi and Matthew, the Jews of that day had an expectation that when the Messiah came, he would provide manna again. The miracle that came through Moses would be repeated. It's a significant expectation to hold in our mind as we think of this story. It's also remember the time of Passover when they're conscious of Moses, what he did bringing them out of Egypt and the need for deliverance. And Jesus performs a sign, bread in the wilderness. And so their natural response is, this must be the prophet to come. And verses 14 and 15 of this chapter tell us that they intended to come and take him by force and make him their king. Jesus, though, Jesus retreats to a mountain. He's not interested in this program that they have. He retreats to the mountain, and he sends his disciples off by a boat. And we remember the rest of the story because we read it last week from Mark. They're buffeted by the waves a few miles from land. He's alone on the mountain. The crowds have been dispersed, and he crosses the lake on the water, gets in the boat with his disciples, and they're at their destination. So that's where we pick up the story. In verse 22, it says, And on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They wake up the next morning. They make camps throughout the wilderness. They saw the disciples depart in the boat. They saw Jesus go to the mountain, and they wake up in the morning, come out of their tents, and Jesus is gone. So they sail to Capernaum. They follow afterwards. That's home base for Jesus and his disciples. That's likely where they've gone. But of course, when they get there, they get there with a question. This is verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's a fairly natural question. You and your disciples arrived in only one boat. Only one car showed up to the party. They took off by themselves. You stayed behind and went to the mountain. And suddenly we sail across to Capernaum looking for you guys, and you got across the lake somehow. When did you get here? How did you pull that one off? We don't know what they wondered. It may have been that they thought that he went around the lake, that he hiked the long way around through the night. We, maybe they thought another boat showed up and picked him up. We don't know what they were thinking. But they ask a fairly logical question. How long have you been here? We thought you were back in the mountains. 
Jesus, though, in John, almost never answers questions. If you read through John, it's actually almost infuriating at times. People ask them these simple, ordinary questions. Hey, when did you get to Capernaum? And he says something that is completely tangential. It's tangential to them, but it's actually right on point for him. Because Jesus, this is verse 26, answered them. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said, when did you get here? And he turns around and looks at them and he said, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because your tummies got full. Now, for the people who asked the question, they might have been, hang on, that's not what we asked, Jesus. Maybe we'll try this one again. Maybe this whole thing went back and forth a couple of times. They say, no, 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 we wanted to know. Was it 4 a.m.? Did you take a boat? Did you hike? And Jesus said, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you had your bellies made full. You're looking for me. You missed the signs. Remember, signs are miraculous indicators of Jesus' identity and mission. And he's saying to them, you missed it. You might have seen the miracles, but you missed what they signified. You missed the signs. He says, you're only following me because your belly is full. In effect, he's looking at them and he's saying, you are aiming at the wrong goal. You're coming after me not because you understood what I was doing and who I am. You're coming after me because you got a full belly. You're aiming at the wrong goal. You're not aiming at the goal, the goal that leads to eternal life, Jesus himself giving this gift. You are aiming at a full belly. You missed what I was trying to communicate to you. This is the point where we need to actually stop and actually begin to recognize ourselves in this story. After all, there's not a person in this room who doesn't have to confess from time to time that we are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. How many times have we sought after what he might do for us, missing the thing that he truly wanted to give us? Augustine said, and his view of humanity was a bit pessimistic, but I think he's right, he said that scarcely is Jesus sought for Jesus' sake. In other words, most of those who pursue Jesus are after what Jesus might do for them, a full belly, more than they are the true gift that he wants to give them. We may not feel as crass as the crowd. They were pursuing him simply because he filled their bellies and they wanted another meal. We may not be that crass, but I doubt that it's because we're more spiritually mature. I think it's probably just because of the fact that we've never suffered from true hunger. And so that's not been the thing that's driven us to Jesus. But if you actually look at our prayers, and I think this is helpful to begin to understand, if you look at our prayers, most of what we pray is what Jesus can do for me. Help me in this. Fix this. Fix this situation. Make me different. We're asking him to do things for us. Now, hear me clearly, and I'm going to repeat this several times. Those things are not wrong to ask for. 
they are not bad things. The food that Jesus gave wasn't a bad thing. He actually gave it to the people. We read in the Gospels, he had compassion on them, that he fed them freely. He joyfully answers prayers that are like this. The fix me, Lord, heal me, give me a blessing, give me peace sort of prayers. Those aren't bad things, and God doesn't actually despise those prayers. But the point that Jesus is making with this crowd is the one that we need to hear. Because what he says to them about their full of bellies is this is not the right goal. It's not the right end. It's not the right purpose. He gave them the food freely. It was a blessing from God. But it was wrong for them to put that thing, that blessing, into the position that Jesus alone was supposed to occupy. There are times when we need to see that the thing that we're praying for, our fulfillment, our healing, our peace, that the thing that we're praying for has supplanted Jesus as the chief goal. There's times when that needs to be corrected in us. There's times when our pursuit of Jesus, just like this crowd, becomes a pursuit of him just so that he might fulfill us rather than a pursuit of him for his own sake. We want a fixed life, and so we follow Jesus to get it. But then there's times we wake up some mornings when we realize, I actually want a fixed life more than I want Jesus. This is what he's correcting with this crowd. As I meditated on this passage, to be honest, I was convicted. I was convicted because so much of my own prayer, so much of my own pursuit is so that I might have the blessing of God, have the peace of God. And there's times when I realize that I want the peace that he offers, the blessing that he brings more than I want him himself. This was the conviction that hit my soul. And my prayer as I read through this passage over and over was, Lord, let me care more about you than the things that you might give me. Let me long for your presence more than I long for the peace that you might give. Again, and I repeat myself, praying for the blessing and the peace is not wrong. Those are gifts from God. They are not wrong or bad things. But the desire for the gifts more than the giver, that's when we become mistaken. When the gift that he might bring is more important than the one giving it, that's when our lives are off course. As I read through this, the words of the psalmist kept coming to my mind, and I longed for these to be my prayers. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A beautiful cry for the presence of God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A beautiful prayer for the presence of God. For Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. God alone is the only thing that I need. Psalm 23 ends that famous song, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just let me be in your house. This, these, these refrains ring through the Psalms. Perhaps the one that I think is most beautiful from Psalm 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and this I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and meditate in his temple to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. A beautiful picture of the soul crying out, 
The only thing that matters is that I see you. Again, my point is not that the praying for the things that he brings or would do for us is wrong, but that the desire for the gift over the giver is. And I want our souls woken up to what Jesus is correcting with this crowd, that he is the pursuit, not the bread that he brings. If you find yourself hearing this morning the fact that you've sought the loaves more than the giver of the loaves, long for what he would do for you more than you would long for him, hear his gentle critique as he says to this crowd, don't work for the food that perishes. Pursue the food that, eters, that persists to eternal life. The crowd responds to this in a way that probably makes a lot of sense to us. They say in verse 28, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? He's been critiquing them and saying, you've got the wrong goal. And they say, so how do we do it right? It's like they're missing the point slightly still. He says, your goal is wrong. You're pursuing the loaves, not the giver of the loaves. And they say, so how do we do it better? But they're not talking about the goal. They're talking about the method. How do we keep the law? Come on, teach us, Rabbi. What's the next step? It's like if we responded to Jesus' conviction, you need to seek me more than you seek the things that I would give. And your response or my response is, how do I have a better quiet time? It's not wrong, but it's a little bit off the point. You're talking about method, not goal. And he's pushing them towards goal. He's pushing them to pursue the right things. His point, you're not going to get this right by fixing your discipline. You're not going to get this right by working harder. You're not going to get this right by putting more energy into your devotions. The question is, is your heart hungry for the right food? This is the thing that he wants them to hear. And so they ask him this question, what must we do to do the works of God? And look in verse 29, because he cuts right through the question. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that God actually wants you to do. They want to learn how to have better devotions, be more disciplined. And his response is that the work that God wants you to do is to believe in the one that he has sent on your behalf. It isn't about doing devotions better. It isn't about cleaning yourself up better. It isn't about even staying sin-free. Hear me clearly here. Those things are good. Those things are good. But they aren't the goal. The goal is Jesus Christ himself, not being sin-free or the perfect Christian. To shoot for I want to be perfect and to miss Jesus is, in the words of one of my favorite Anglican theologians, to embark on an intricate voyage with an inaccurate compass and the wrong map. If you are shooting for sin-free or the perfect life and missing Jesus, you're going in the wrong direction. And again, it's not that sin-free or perfect life are bad things. It's the fact that they are not the end goal. They're not what we're pursuing. We need to start with the right goal. We need to start with the goal that is the one who has been sent by the Father to us. We need to start with the goal that is Jesus the Messiah. We need to start with the goal that is the eternal Word of God, the Son of Man and Son of God. He is our pursuit. He is what we need. 
Our pursuit is not for his blessing in the end. It is not for a comfortable life. It's not for freedom from sickness. It's not for money or for pleasure. It's not for a well-balanced life. It's not even for a healthy spiritual life. It's not even for a gift of a clean conscience or effectiveness in the kingdom of God. Again, those are all good things, but they are the gifts of the giver, and our pursuit is for the giver himself. Jesus the Messiah is supposed to be our pursuit. As Jesus said, the work of God, the work that's actually pleasing to God. In other words, the thing that he cares about from you is very simply that you would believe in Jesus Christ. This is where we need to hesitate. If you look at yourself this morning and you say, indeed, I've been pursuing the wrong goals. I've been pursuing things that are selfish. I've been even pursuing things that are sinful. If you look at yourself and you say those things, or you say, I've been pursuing Jesus, but I've been pursuing him because I want him to do something for me. I want him to fix something for me. If this is the response of your heart as it was of mine, hear how simple the Christian life is. The Father gave the Son to us. The Father freely offers the Son to us. And his call to you and his call to me is very simple. Believe in him. Trust in this one. I love that this stained glass window is here. Because in the mornings when I sit here and I look up and I'm scattered and anxious, I look up there and I go, no, he alone is my hope. The Father gave the Son to you And he simply says, believe in this one. Trust in this one. Put your hopes on this one. Bank on this one. Let him matter to you more than being free of your struggles. If you receive Jesus and yet everything else in your life remains the same, all the difficulties that remain the same, you would be wealthy in the only sense that matters. Put all your hopes on him. Bank on him. It is so simple, even though it's difficult. Let Jesus matter to you more than the difficulties of life. Let Jesus matter to you more than being effective at work or having the right job. Let Jesus matter to you more than being a good parent. Let Jesus matter to you more than being fulfilled, being at peace, being blessed. Let him be the only thing that counts. Put your eggs in his basket and you will find yourself doing the work of God. You will find yourself pleasing to God. This is what Jesus said to that crowd that day. This is the work of God, to believe in the one that the Father has sent. The crowd following Jesus needed proof. They demanded another sign. Give us more manna. Prove that you're better than Moses. Moses offered more than one meal. Are you less than him? They were having a hard time hearing his message, just like we are so many days. But Jesus refused to play the game of signs. He corrects their theology. Moses didn't give the manna. It was my father in heaven. And then he says, look, my father's still offering you true bread right now. He's standing in front of you face to face, the bread of life. He is the bread of life, the one who can satisfy the empty longings of your soul. We need to hear this because down in each of our soul, there is a deep longing and we are on this little hamster wheel 
seeking to say what might actually solve this problem. He is the bread of life. He is the only one that satisfies. He satisfies more than the next vacation. He satisfies more than money, more than the better of jo- a better job, more than your reputation, more than the physical pleasure that food or drink might bring. He satisfies more than being a good person, being self-confident, being physically fit, being good-looking, having all the things that the world cares about. He satisfies more than the right clothing and the right house. He satisfies more than even being a good parent, having a perfect child, doing all the things right in life. He alone is the bread of life. This is what he was trying to communicate to them. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons. I alone will satisfy. So the call to us this morning is clear. Jesus Christ alone will satisfy. Jesus Christ alone will satisfy the longings of your soul. Jesus Christ alone will heal the broken places. The call to you is simple. Come to him. Come to him. Look on him and believe in him. This is what would work, would be pleasing to God. Pursue the Lord Jesus whom the Father has sent to you. Amen.